Welcome to the Xterra Podcast. I'm Tom Patton. For the longest time, space launch systems were single use. Everything was disposable and expensive. Now space launch systems are more and more all about reusability. SpaceX started the trend with its Falcon 9 rockets and companies like Rocket Lab, Sierra Nevada, Orbital ATK and others are all looking at reusability of at least some rocket components. Allied Market Research released a report last year indicating that the reusable launch vehicle market is estimated to be worth $1.38 billion in 2025 and grow to $3.56 billion by 2035. My guest on this edition of the Xterra podcast is Kelly Henning, COO of Stoke Space, a company developing 100% reusable rockets designed to be flown daily. Kelly, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Stoke Space is possibly the first real competitor to SpaceX's fully reusable rocket. So tell us about your fully reusable second stage that makes this possible. Um, absolutely. Uh, so uh, one of the difficulties in reusing a second stage, um, as I'm sure you know, is having it survive atmospheric reentry. Um, you've seen many different approaches to that in the past with either ablative heat shields or ceramic tiles. Uh, those types of solutions uh, limit the amount of reusability you can get out of it. Of course, the ablative heat shield is a one-time use, and then the ceramic tiles need to be inspected over and over again. They have uh, very disastrous um, failure modes um, that can be you know, even tragic, and they need to just be constantly maintained and inspected. And, um, and in addition, when the the stage actually will land, they're very hot. So it takes a while for you to actually approach them. Then they have to develop novel ways of pulling them off in order to be able to reuse the rocket quickly again. Our approach is to use an actively cooled metallic heat shield that um, essentially it, the failure mechanism is very passive. If you get a hit with a you know bird or you drop a hammer on it or any of those types of things, uh, it just overcools in that particular area. Uh, we use hydrogen, um, which is our fuel for the second stage. It's cryogenic, and so it flows through the skin of that heat shield and keeps it cool enough to uh, survive reentry. How did you come up with that, or how did your engineers come up with that idea? I didn't come up with it. <laughs> I can tell you that right now. That was not me. <laughs> um, Andy and Tom, uh, who are the founders of the company, uh, started the company during the pandemic. And I like to tell a story that they were in the basement and they said, how can we, using first principles, come up with an approach to reusability for the second stage and how can we protect it? And they're, you know, they're, their specialty is rocket engines, and they actively cool uh, the combustion chambers using fuel all the time. And so they theorized that the thermal environment would actually be similar in the combustion chamber as it would be right on that surface of the shield during reentry. Uh, not necessarily the temperature, um, but the heat flux would be similar. And so using the principles of cooling the combustion chamber with the fuel, um, cryogenic fuel, you know, flowing through uh, channels in the structure, uh, they thought they could do the same thing with the heat shield. Is it something that you can test without actually flying? There are certain parts of it that you can test. Uh, we've tested it uh, in the, so it is part of the engine. So the cryogenic fuel will flow through uh, the heat shield itself and then to the combustion chamber and then to the turbine. 
Uh, so it is part of the, uh, the actual cycle for the engine. And so we have tested it when we're doing the engine tests. And so it's part of that overall, you know, you know, testing sequence, the actual heat and exact environment that it's going to experience during reentry, there's not really a way to test that exact scenario um, on Earth. So you're developing a two-stage rocket. Um, two-stage. Yeah, two-stage rocket. Now, what what's the recoverability on the first stage? Is it is it like we see with SpaceX, or is it like we're going to see with Rocket Lab? How are you bringing that one back to be able to be used again? Uh, very, very quickly. We are bringing it back very similar to what SpaceX would do. Um, so we have not fully developed the first stage. We're still in component testing and engine design, uh, but we do intend to do something very similar to what SpaceX has demonstrated. Kelly, how did you get into this? Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, sure. Um, I right out of graduate school, I joined um, old TRW, uh, which was then um, taken over by Northrop and over, I think it was in Redondo Beach, California. And I started working on advanced electronics uh, for, for them. Um, and so I was individual contributor. And then I moved on to more program management and chief engineer roles. And I did that for a number of years. Um, and then I moved on to uh, strategy um, and a number of roles in that area. Um, after that, I moved to uh, Raytheon. Uh, where I worked in their space payloads group um, and then over into their department 22, um, which is their advanced concepts and technologies group. Um, and so I had leadership roles in both of those organizations. And then uh, Stoke reached out to me and asked me to come on board and join them in this awesome adventure. Uh, and I was very, very excited. So has space been something that you've been interested in for a long time? I've been in I've been in space for a very long time. Yes, I would definitely say so. I've been interested in space since I was a little girl. You've talked about this a little bit already, but give us a little bit more of the company's origin story. Oh, sure. Uh, so uh, Tom and Andy, um, the co-founders, uh, they had worked at another company and done some pretty amazing work there, and they really wanted to focus on full reusability and they wanted to go very, very fast. And uh, so that was not something they were seeing um, in their current uh, company. And so they decided to strike out on their own and try something new and form a brand new company to have a little bit more control and set the culture and the tone and really tackle this reusability problem. When you talk about they wanted to go fast and obviously development of products for space is almost never uh, a fast proposition. So how are they approaching that to be able to bring something to market quickly? They are, they have adopted and they um, maintain a culture that is based on design, test, and iterate, and design, test, and iterate, um, and understanding that the most that they can actually learn about a, a design is not necessarily through full simulations, um, but really in doing the test itself. Uh, and so we have embedded that into the culture that, you know, we will learn and we will keep going and keep trying again. And uh, our test facility is only about three hours away from our design facility and manufacturing facility. So as we're testing and we need to do design changes to optimize the performance um, or get it working, uh, we can 
you know, make a change very, very, very quickly, have it manufactured, and then drive it out to our test location and do all of that within one day. And so you regularly see people um, you know, on the Slack channels asking who's going to the test facility and who can bring over the parts and, uh, you know, who is, who is coming back um, and things like that. And so people are constantly ferrying hardware um, back and forth from the test uh, location. You know, it seems that there's a new launch company popping up every uh, two or three times a year. The, I, I get releases of, of companies that we're getting into the launch business. So how challenging is it to come into what's becoming a more and more crowded market? It's it's challenging. I would say it's it hasn't, for a while there, there was a number of launch companies starting um, all the time, and you were getting wind of a new one. I think it has slowed down a bit. So I don't think you're seeing that same volume of entrance as we did a couple of years ago. Um, but definitely, there are a lot of people right now focusing on this space. Uh, the important thing is to make sure that you have a product uh, that is differentiated. Um, and so we believe that we have that. Um, we have this fully reusable second stage. Um, ensure that you have the absolute best talent possible. Um, and I think we have that. I think we have phenomenal people here um, who are experts in their field and have done amazing things. And then three, have a culture. Have a culture that supports them, that can make them go fast, and that they, you know, they have everything that they need, and that is unwavering. And then I guess fourth, Hopefully I'm on four. Uh, fourth is uh, to stay focused. Stay focused and do not get distracted. Um, don't come up with anything that's gimmicky or, um, or, or something just to make yourself stand out. Uh, you know, be very, very sure of your thesis and stay focused on that. I'm talking with Kelly Hennings, COO of Stoke Space on the Xterra podcast. Take a moment right now to click subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our podcasts or if you're watching on YouTube, any of the videos from Xterra, the Journal of Space Commerce. So Kelly, where are you now in the development of your rocket and what kind of timeline are you looking at for the first commercial launches? We are, we have finished uh, the second stage engine test. Um, it is getting integrated right now uh, for the second stage vehicle and we're going to do a vertical takeoff vertical landing um, demonstration um, so it's going to do a little tiny hop um, and we'll demonstrate that um, and so that's upcoming very soon and we're in the middle of developing all of our stage one components um, so uh, that's going to be a full flow uh, engine um, using methane and oxygen and so that will uh, those components right now are being designed and they're being tested. We've tested the oxygen pre-burner and we're working on getting the rest of those components out of the stand. Um, so our our goal is to launch in 2025 and uh, we have met every milestone um, ahead of schedule. Um, so I have high confidence that we'll be able to get there. Now you've recently been allocated Launch Complex 14 at Cape Canaveral. What's special about that particular site? Uh, so that particular site is, if you go, you can see it's it's the Mer Mercury 7 pad. They have that really beautiful monument out front um, that you can go and you can visit and you can take a look at. It's the historic pad uh, for John Glenn. Um, so um, we're just incredibly, incredibly honored uh, to um, be allocated that pad and we'll take care of it. What needs to be done to prepare it for launches for Stoke Space? 
So I don't know if you've ever been to the Cape and kind of driven around there. You have, right? And so mm -hmm. you can see all of the different launch complexes that were essentially just left. And, you know, it's a little bit, it's a little bit, it's a little bit sad um, because you look back and you see all of them there and how active we were in in space at one point in time and how busy that area was uh, for launching, ro launching rockets um, and other activities. And so when you drive through there, you, it's a little bit sad that, you know, so much of it has been abandoned. Um, so uh, that our particular site, except for the monument um, and the blockhouse, um, which has been um, updated and cared for, uh, but the large structures, the ramps and some other features have been just uh, essentially abandoned um, and left to the elements. So uh, we need to go through, um, we need to do environmental assessment to make sure um, that we're not going to hurt any of the native species there. Um, then we also need to go through and make sure that we're um, preserving uh, what we need to, to make sure that we, we take care of the past. And then we need to look at our designs and make sure that what we have in place there can uh, support our 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 operations and our launches. Uh, so there's quite a bit of work that actually needs to be done there, um, but we need to do a little bit of assessment to understand exactly what. And I would say we're really looking to try to maintain um, as much of the historical, I would say, look uh, uh, that it had before. Um, so we're, we're trying to do that and we're looking into how best to do it. Well, I live on the coast of Florida. Oh, there you uh, go. A little bit north <laughs> of, of Cape Canaveral, but I was... Okay. I was down there for a recent launch and, and, you know, when you live and work this near the ocean, it's a harsh environment. I mean, not just metal, but concrete even begins to deteriorate after a while in the solitaire. So I, I imagine that that's been sitting there unused for, the, for that many years. There's going to be a, a lot of just real solid infrastructure work that needs to be done to bring it back up to spec. Uh, you're 100% correct. Yes, absolutely. Now, yes. Elon Musk says, he builds the machines to build the machines. Stokespace has written the software to design, make, and manage the machines. Tell us about Fusion. Tell you about Fusion. So uh, Fusion is an inventory uh, tracking software that um, allows you to create workflows um, and take a part that you've designed um, you've taken the drawing and you can integrate it with that soft software that controls the drawing. Um, and then you can essentially uh, create the, the product itself in Fusion with the appropriate components. Then you can track the data uh, for each of those components. So let's say um, you were designing a shovel and you had a drawing for a shovel and you loaded that drawing into Fusion and you created an object for that. Every one of those pieces of that 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 shovel um, could essentially then be tracked in there with serial numbers and test data and workflows that describe the process to make the shovel and really everything that it takes in order to bring the piece of hardware from a drawing all the way through production or all the way through R&D and then production um, and keep track of it until it kind of it, it emerges as a finished product. Um, and so this is something that didn't quite exist um, in this form and wasn't useful in the sense of going from R&D to production. And we didn't 
you know, we didn't have something as we as we were approaching this problem, uh, and we we looked externally for some type of software that would do this, and we've had you know quite a bit of interest um, from folks in utilizing the software. So this didn't exist before, um, and we developed it as we were building the rocket. So we you know, we had engineers give feedback on the product, um, help us improve it. Um, and so it's a software that has helped us be successful and that we've utilized. Um, and now we're offering it to others. So how critical is it then to manage that design, build, make process? The companies have actually been doing that for a long time, but how difficult is it to get the system dialed in? Let's see. It's not that difficult when you have fusion. <laughs> Sorry, that was a shameless plug. Um, <laughs> that, that's why we're here. <laughs> it's it's not it is not difficult. Um, uh, I would say uh, in the past, a lot of companies will use uh, bombs that are Excel based, um, and a lot of times they'll. Um, other types of programs that use or create bombs are are so controlled, it makes it very, very difficult to edit or to you really utilize them for R&D. And so Fusion focuses on being able to use it for R&D um, to be able to, um, you know, kind of optimize your bomb and, and change your bomb as you need to, um, but at the same point in time, move on to production once you have that locked down. So how hard is it? It can be very, very difficult, especially um, as they start to grow um, and as you are trying to essentially take the philosophy which we have, which is, you know, design, test, iterate, design, test, iterate. What's the long-term vision um, for Stoke Space? What, and what, where do you see the company in, oh, say, 10 years? What do you think you will have accomplished? What do we think? I think that we are going to, this is my, this is my dream. And so this is my vision that you have here. I hope that we have rockets flying daily out of Vandenberg and the Cape and maybe another site. And we are essentially, you can go to our website and you can just book a ride. Um, so, you know, you can say like an airline ticket. Um, and so we're essentially, you know, by, you know, we're selling tickets to space, not rockets or launches, we're selling tickets to space. And it's, it's run very similar to how you would see an airline, um, an air travel. And it is completely runs like that. And we're operating just like that. And of course, you don't have to buy a build a new airplane every time you want to go fly. You do not no. <laughs> and the site, you don't have to spend days inspecting between each flight, right? You you, it goes on the ground, it gets turnover in a couple of hours, and then you're back up in the air with it. Yep. So where do you see the demand then? Do you think there's enough demand for a company to launch something into space every day? Yes, I do. I absolutely do. I think the demand will only grow. I think we are seeing the emergence of a large space economy. Um, just with Earth observation and improvements in obser Earth observation for weather monitoring or um, improvements in agriculture um, for missile warning more on the defense side um, or even for just resource overall resource management for pollutant um, monitoring and policing um, all these things uh, will only grow and we'll have more and more data to help us you know effectively live our lives and as we and that's only one one tiny component then you have 
the communications industry, you see large mega constellations emerging um, for those, and that will only continue. And then you start seeing resource utilization in space. So asteroid mining um, and even economies um, that utilize um, lunar um, technologies. And so I think it's just, I think it will start, you know, in near Earth orbits, and then it's just going to keep growing and growing and expanding. And I launch is all key to that. What's your niche? I mean, you, you hear you talk about medium lift rockets, you talk about heavy lift rockets. What's the niche for Stokes Space? So we're we're medium and we'll grow larger. Um, so our first our first block will will be medium, and we'll just keep expanding until um, basically the market tells us to stop. Is it uh, something that it's harder to build something bigger to become a heavy lift company? Or are, do you think you'll just be able to take what you have and scale it up? Oh, I think we'll be able to take what we have and scale it up. I would say the difficulty doesn't necessarily become launch or design itself. It becomes how do you get it from your manufacturing location to your launch location? And so it's a lot easier for um, companies to start off um, smaller um, just because of the you know the logistics in in transport to that point you're on the west coast and your launch site is all the way over here on the east coast yes um are you planning to expand into into florida where you'll be much closer to where you're going to be doing at least your initial launches uh i think we're going to expand everywhere so <laughs> <laughs> So, so, so yes, I, uh, at, at some point in time, I definitely see us uh, moving into Florida um, and having manufacturing uh, facilities there as well. You'll love the winters here, I promise. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure they're much better than Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've never spent a winter in Seattle, but, uh, and the one time I was in Seattle, and it's been many years ago, it was nice and sunshiny and the weather was beautiful. And I mentioned that to somebody on on, a, on the pier and, and he turned to me and said, don't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to tell you, before I moved out here, all the times I visited, it was beautiful. It was exactly warm and sunny and phenomenal. It's not always like that, I do have to say. <laughs> well, we get an occasional hurricane here in Florida, too. So every place has its, <laughs> has its downside. <laughs> We're just about out of time, Kelly, and it's been delightful chatting with you. But we ask all of our guests this question, and I want you to look out over the next 10 to 15 years in space commerce and the role of Stoke Space and tell me what you see. I see Stoke Space allowing a large number of new companies and startups uh, to really flourish. Um, they need launch and they need to be able to get into space. And I think Stoke Space uh, will enable that. And I think it's very difficult to ride share on you know, SpaceX and then Starship. And so uh, I think that you know people are really going to look for a a smaller rocket um, that can take them to exactly where they need to go quickly um, at a low cost. And I think people are going to look to the sustainability aspect as well um, and enjoy knowing that uh, their ride um, you know, to orbit uh, is, is done with the most uh, you know, climate-friendly technologies. Is the 
lack of launch capacity a, a log jam right now? Is it a choke point or is, is the demand right now pretty much where it needs to be? Or are there companies just lined up waiting for a ride to space? There's, there's companies lined up waiting for a ride to space, I would say. I would say, and it's going to, I believe it's going to become more and more of a choke point. Well, Kelly, it's been great chatting with you. Thank you so much for joining me today and uh, good luck. And maybe I'll come out to the West Coast and, and come have a look at what you're doing or we'll catch up at some point when you're down here at the Cape. Oh, Let awesome. I look forward to that. Super. Kelly Henning is COO of Stoke Space. Thank you very much. Thank you. Take care. That is going to do it for this edition of the Xterra podcast. Check out our YouTube channel and be sure to click on subscribe so you can stay up to date on developments in space commerce and be notified when we post new videos. You can also get daily space commerce news at xterrajsc.com. And one thing more, be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter at xterrajsc. Until next time, I'm Tom Patton. Thanks for joining us.